Let me invite your attention to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, at the end of the service, uh, or at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you to take the insert this morning, entitled, Proclaim the Good News of His Salvation from Day to Day, and I'm going to ask you to make some commitments during that time. And when the offering plate comes by, I want to ask you to place those there a little bit later in the service. So if you'll keep that handy, I would appreciate that. We've been exploring what the Bible teaches about the... uh, the duty of all Christians to share the good news of Christ with those who do not know him. Uh, Frequently and often the last 30 years, we've uh, heard Christians retort, I don't have the gift of being an evangelist. And the notion is, is that I'm therefore not responsible to witness. Uh, Much of this began with a Christian author uh, whose whose name I won't mention now. He's a very kind Christian gentleman, but I'm, I'm going to have to critique his work for just a moment. He wrote a book about spiritual gifts and estimated that in his opinion only about 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelist. And he said, I'm a teacher so I don't feel the obligation to witness and even if I'm on an airplane and someone's sitting next to me, I don't strike up a conversation about Christ or the gospel. Instead, I will work on my academic work. Now when I fly, Uh, I take advantage of every opportunity that that I can get. Uh, I'll look at a nervous person flying and I'll say, hey, what was that noise? (laughs) I'll do whatever I can to deliver the gospel. I I take a a different position. I'm not the best witness there is, but I, I want to say to you that this author's work has been disastrous for evangelism. Prior to his work, we didn't hear such notions as I'm not responsible to witness because I'm not an evangelist. In fact, I want to address the primary text that that errant notion, uh, around which that errant, errant, not arrogant, but errant notion is organized. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, where Paul describes the gifts of the church are given to grow the church spiritually and numerically. Beginning in verse 11, speaking of Christ, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever, what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God has arranged churches in such a way that they might do evangelism. So even if you do not have the gift of evangelism or you're not a gifted evangelist, I I do want to ask you some questions along with that. I don't want to focus this morning on what you do not have. I'd like for us to focus for a moment on what you do have. And so I want to pose this in terms of questions. First, do you have a staff? Well, verse 11 talks about church staff. 
He gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Do you have staff or do you have ministers? He goes on to say, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The apostles here, there's some debate about whether these were the original 12 or if these happened to be missionaries. I, I lean towards the latter one day and towards the former on another day. The text does not define that. But nevertheless, there are some that are prophets. I believe those ended with the New Testament. There was no need for further revelation. The faith, faith was once and all for delivered. delivered. Uh, Jude 3 says, Some evangelists, it's clear that those continued, some pastors and some teachers. Now look why God gives staff to churches. Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, staff exist in order to equip the body of Christ for ministry. In other words, they're to be built up in service and ministry. It is an errant idea that ministers on staff are the sole ministers of the church. In fact, some view, unfortunately, the Christian church in two classes. There happens to be the pastor and the staff, and they are at a high level playing major league ball, professional ball, if I can use that illustration. They play the Braves in Turner Field, and they play the Falcons in the Georgia Dome. They play the Hawks, if you can consider them a professional team. But then there's everyone else down below, everyone else down below, and they're playing the Columbus Red Sticks and the Knoxville Smokies and the Gwinnett Braves, the ordinary layperson. Well, the truth is, is that pastors and staff are in the major leagues, but the Bible teaches so, is all, so are all the, the other Christians. The moment you came to Christ and were baptized, you were commissioned to ministry. And it is our task then as ministers to equip you for ministry. It is not the will of God for any saint to sit and to soak. And so we exist to equip you for the work of ministry. It goes on in verse 12, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's a building term. And so we equip you for the work of ministry that you may build up the body spiritually and numerically. And that's why we exist. Now, let's look at this text again in verse 11. He gave evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why in the world would he give a church an evangelist? Why would he give a church a pastor and teacher? Let's think for an, about an evangelist for a moment. Why would God give a local church an evangelist, the ministry of the evangelist? Does God give a local church the ministry of an evangelist so that the church might grow in the spiritual gift of administration? No. That's why he gives someone with the gift of administration. Why would God give an evangelist to a local church so that the church might grow in the spiritual gift of serving? No, that's why he gives the gift of serving. Why would God give then a church, a local church, the gift of an evangelist? So that the church might grow in the spiritual gift of mercy? No. Tell me, beloved, why would God give evangelists to the local church? Not that they might grow in administration, service, or mercy, as important as those gifts are, but that they might grow in evangelism. In other words, God wants the church to look more like evangelists, so he gives the church evangelists that they might be equipped for that. 
Now, the same is true with all the other gifts. God wants us to look more like evangelists. God wants us to look more like servants and those who have the gift of mercy and administration and teaching, at least to have that knowledge base. So that we might grow up and look more like Jesus, the preeminent servant and evangelist of them all. So you may not have the gift of evangelist, but do you have a staff? And do you have access to the gift of the evangelist? Well, there's a second question I want to ask. You may not have the gift of evangelist, but do you know Jesus? Look how it describes Jesus in verse number 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect or the complete or the graduated man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You may not have noticed it here, but there are at least four ways to describe Jesus found in this text. There's first, Jesus the mediator. He brings about unity of the faith. Now, oftentimes when we talk about unity, we have to preface unity by saying that we don't have to believe the same thing, but we have to walk together. Well, the text really casts a greater vision than that. It says that when Jesus Christ is in control of unity amongst the people, that Jesus Christ even unifies us in the faith. That's how much of a unifying force Jesus Christ is. And so he goes so far as to bring divided parties together and, and, and we're divided without Christ from God. He brings us together with him. But the death and the resurrection of Christ not only brought about the hope of being unified with God and ending hostilities with heaven, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brought about the hope of ending disputes and ending division between one another. And that is why in the Middle East there will never be any peace until Jesus is seated at the head of the conference table. Christ is needed. Now I will tell you, by the way, to chase a slow fat rabbit, that in the Middle East where you do find peace between Arab and Jew, you find it in Christian churches where they know the Lord. That is where peace reigns in the Middle East, by the way. It's one of the great untold stories. There are more Arab Christians, by the way, there than Jewish Christians. But for 40 years, the number of Jewish Christians has been growing and they found great unity in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the great mediator and he brings God and man together by repentance and faith. And he brings man and man together by repentance and faith in his gospel. Christ is the great mediator who brings peace even to the extent of unity of the faith. And then he is not only the mediator, he's the mind. He's the mind of minds. No one has ever thought the thoughts Jesus has thought. He is the great mind until we come to unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And the knowledge really is no good, ladies and gentlemen, until we tell it. Carl F. H. Henry said about the knowledge of the gospel this. He said, good news is not good news unless it gets there on time. And how true that is. So Christ is the mediator. He is the mind. And then he's the model. Paul here calls him the perfect man. Jesus is complete without any incompleteness in him at all. In other words, Jesus does not lack in any vital or non-essential area of life. His love is without pollution. His holiness is without compromise. His mind is without error. His heart is without, uh, is without any degree of pollution at all. Christ is the complete and perfect one. He is exalted. There's no one like Jesus. He is the model. And then he is the measure. 
The Father measures Jesus Christ and then takes that measure and imposes it upon the body and says, this is what I want you to look like. I want you to measure up to the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to shape and form you. And I will not leave you alone, he says, until you look just like him. And he will persecute us into anxiety until we look like Jesus. He will. And so Jesus is the measure because Jesus Christ is worthy. Listen, is there another, is there a human anywhere on the earth that we can describe in these terms in such glowing terms? No, I don't believe so. Now, I have had the opportunity to meet a few celebrities in my life. I've, I've met Kirk Cameron. I've met, um, I've met uh, Meadowlark Lemon of the Globetrotters. I've met Sherry Michelle Mills. I've met a number of celebrities through the years. But, beloved, what I want to say to you is that we have a greater gift than these amongst us, Jesus. And it just seems to me, because he is the mediator, the mind, the model, and the measure, somebody can open their mouth about Jesus. He is worthy. He is good. And even if there were no commandment in the scripture to tell the world about Christ, we'd do it anyway because of how good he is. So let's not be guilty of having a $10 million savior and a 10 cent response. He is worthy. So my question is, do you really need a gift to exalt Jesus? I think there's enough in Jesus to exalt him and provoke great action on his behalf. Uh, the third question is, not only do you have a staff and do you know Jesus, but you may not have the gift of evangelist, but do you see a need? Look at verse 14 and how Paul outlines the need of the world. He uses three images here. That we should no longer be children. That's the first, that's the first image. Uh, the word could be easily translated babies. When we come to Christ and give our all to him, we leave an infantile stage of vulnerability and become safe and secure in him. And outside Christ, our world is as vulnerable as a world full of infants. And then he uses a second image, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, the second image here is wind, as unstable as wind or light objects blown by the wind. There, there is great instability without Jesus Christ. We, when I was a boy, we were in a day when social pressures kept people together and kept families and marriages together. I don't know if you've noticed, but that day is gone. And it takes Jesus Christ to hold things together. It takes Jesus Christ for there to be stability in this life. There are no longer social pressures to keep people together. In fact, social pressures tear them apart. So often, and if there's any hope for stability in life, it must come only through Jesus Christ. And then we, we could expound greatly on stability with God. People try and make resolution over and over again to do right before God. But without Christ, it is a vain effort. And so that's the second image, babies and, and wind. But then third, uh, dice or gambling. Look at verse 14. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceit, deceitful plotting. Trickery of men, cunning craftiness, deceitful plotting were all terms used in dice games in the first century. And so the apostle is saying here, without Jesus Christ, you're gambling your life and your eternity. And so there are three powerful images used here to underscore the need our world has for Jesus Christ. As babies, they are, they are vulnerable. 
because of the winds of the world, they are unstable. Because of the gamble they're taking without Jesus Christ, they are placing their eternity in jeopardy, seriously. Folks, I've got to tell you, that's been taking place for some time. I have a stunning announcement to you, but do you realize that despite some of the loveliness and wonderful things in the Northeast United States, the Northeast United States used to be the Bible Belt of America. And now today, fewer than 2% of those in the Northeast and the New England states are evangelical Bible-believing Christians who affirm the new birth. As the faith was rescinding from the Northeast, it was arising in the South, but now that it's rescinding from the South, it's not arising anywhere in the United States. We don't have an area of the country to replace the South as the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt is about to burst. It's about to vanish. And that's been taking place in Georgia for some time. For 40 years, the population has accelerated and the church growth rate has not kept up. So that just a few years ago, 70% of Georgians were unchurched by the strictest definition. That's what, in other words, when I woke up this morning, when you and I woke up this morning, we were further behind in reaching the state than when we went to bed last night because of the accelerated population growth in the state. You may say, I, I'm not going to witness because uh, I don't have the gift of an evangelist. I, I don't have the duty because I'm not an evangelist. I, I want to assure you right now, there is no one suffering in hell that hopes you make that excuse. Do you see a need? Do you really need a gift to meet the need? I don't believe so. There's a fourth question. You may not have the gift of evangelist, but do you have some love? Look at verse 15 about love. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking, which says something about the nature of the Christian life. The Christian life involves speaking. Sharing the truth, the gospel truth, as it's defined in Ephesians, and doing it in love. And so what we find here is that love speaks. When we love someone, we speak to their benefit. John Wesley, in fact, uh, won his first convert to the Lord sometime in his 20s. And it was a friend of his, and he spoke to him and said, the greatest kindness I can do for you is to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. And I thought, what a lovely way to put it. The greatest kindness I can do for you is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, can you think of anything more kind? Oh, there are a lot of kind things that we can do. But when you share the gospel with someone and they repent and believe the gospel, beloved, they get to share in the very life of God and it is eternal life and they can't lose it when they come to Christ. And so there's love in speech, but then there's love in truth. Uh, we not only love by speaking, but we love by telling folks the truth. I think this is well illustrated by Martin Luther in his, one of his 95 theses that he nailed to the Wittenberg door on October 31st. He was painfully aware that the church was offering indulgences anyone who would give a gift to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And that annoyed him terribly. Now you're familiar with the doctrine of purgatory, are you not? The notion of purgatory is, is that 
your, that uh, good Catholics, or no, failed Catholics go to purgatory for a time of purging. And once they're purged in fire, they then get to go to heaven. And so purgatory is a purging area where Catholics are purged in fire. However, family and friends can offer prayers, they believe, or offerings, love offerings, financial offerings to the church and accelerate the rate of purging. In fact, the fundraiser for St. Peter's Basilica would say, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. I don't know how that sounded in German, but in English, it's poetic. But that kind of nonsense was propagated all throughout Europe in order to raise funds for the building of a new church in Rome. And it annoyed Martin Luther, who had come to Christ as a monk studying the book of Romans. He had been born again by grace through faith and not his works. And so he protested. Now the one to let, the Pope can let souls out of purgatory according to Catholic doctrine. And Martin Luther protested this. And he said in his 82nd thesis, if the Pope really has authority over souls in purgatory, why does he require a financial gift to let them out of purgatory? Why doesn't he let them out because he loves them? Why does he require a gift? Why doesn't he simply do it out of love? And may I pose a similar question to you? If you're resisting evangelism because you don't have the gift, may I ask, why do you need a gift? Don't you love them? Does it not bother your heart that they are headed to perish? Is a gift really necessary? Do we not love them? The text says we speak the truth in love. You, you can speak without loving, but you cannot love without speaking. Do you not have love? But th there's a fifth question. Do you not have Christ's example? Ella Scarborough said, Jesus Christ is distinctly the world's chief soul winner and evangelist. His example will be the standard for all time for all who seek to bring men to, men to God. Our guarantee of success is found in the appropriation of his methods. And I think Dr. Scarborough is entirely correct. Look at verse 15 and 16. We are to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And, and from Christ, the whole church body is joined in it together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And Christ causes growth, causes growth, causes growth of the body for the edifying of, uh, of itself in love. This is about Christ's example. One, it is a complete example. We may grow up in all things into him. In other words, the Father's design is that we embrace all there is of Jesus. It is impossible then to follow Jesus' example and approach his life as if we are approaching a buffet line or a cafeteria. 
where we pick and choose what goes on our plate. The Father will have none of that. If we want to follow Jesus, we must embrace everything there is of Jesus. His service, but not only his service. His love, but not only his love. We embrace his evangelistic commitment and lifestyle as well. Or we cannot make sincere claim to be following the example of Jesus. It is a complete commitment to his example. But then it's a commanding example. It says Christ is indeed the head. He is the brains behind the operation, or he is the head of state. He's the head of this body politic, if I can put it that way. Christ is the head. Jesus Christ is Lord and Master. And I I want to say to you, Jesus Christ fills the throne, and he is in session now. In other words, there's not a vacancy on his throne, and heaven's not taking applications. And so no matter what we claim to be our calling or our passion, what is more important and what triumphs anything personal is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our passions, our callings, so-called, our notions, our thoughts, our opinions, even our gifts are not master and lord of our lives. Jesus Christ in Christ alone is the master of all. And so it is a commanding Example, and, and we can follow his example and take his lordship seriously when we include evangelism in our lives. But then it's also a causal or causative example. Paul says something remarkable here. It's a complex sentence in verse 16, but let me paraphrase and let me jump over a few of the, uh, of the phrases here. From Christ, the whole church body causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When Jesus Christ rules a church body, he and the people in it cause there to be growth. And so growth ends up being a measure of our faithfulness to the example of Jesus Christ. It's much like our children. When our children are healthy, and when their bodies are functioning as they should, they grow. In fact, we watch the developmental milestones. We want the children walking before 15 months. We want them to have language at a certain time. We want them to be able to grasp things with their fingers and thumbs by a certain time. We want their height to be in a certain range by a certain time. Pediatricians are very careful to measure these things in well baby checkups. And if the children fall below those, we become alarmed. And then we launch a battery of tests. Some of you have had to do that with your children. And so we watch these things very, very carefully. We watch growth and we watch development because healthy children grow. And the same is true when it comes to churches. The same is true when it comes to Christians. Whenever we we have a healthy commitment to the lordship and the example of Jesus Christ, then we grow into Christ-likeness. And the body grows as well. And so the point here is this. Jesus Christ spoke the truth in love. Has it ever occurred to you, Jesus found it necessary to say the gospel of Christ? There are some who say, well, I'll just let my life witness, and then people will follow the Lord and come to know Christ by the quality of my life, even if I don't say anything. Have you ever considered how naive that is? 
Number one, we're not that spiritual. I mean, people are not falling all over themselves to come to Christ because of our lifestyles. I've never seen that happen one time. Maybe it's happened somewhere, but I've never witnessed it. But then the second thing that I would say to you is that even Jesus did not rely on the quality of his life to bring people to salvation. Even Jesus spoke the gospel and he found it necessary. And if anyone could have avoided that, it would have been him. But instead, Jesus lived the truth and Jesus spoke the truth. Or as one preacher said, God had only one son and he made him a soul winner. That's what Jesus did. And so you may not have the gift of an evangelist, but do you have Christ's example? Uh, What else do we need? What else do we need? Well, with that, I want to ask you to pull out your commitment card, if you will. And I want to ask you to look at it with me. I'm going to fill mine out, and I'm going to ask you to fill yours out as well as you feel appropriate. But I'm asking you to make several commitments. Daily, I will pray for 15 lost people. If you'll make that commitment, would you check that? Weekly, I'll share the good news of Christ with seven, excuse me, that's my goal, uh, blank number of people and invite them to Beach Haven Baptist Church. You put down the appropriate goal that you think you need to do. Monthly, I will give one hour to visitation. Participating deacons, we're wanting them to begin. Those that are participating September the 7th. Participating church members, we look at beginning around January 4th. And so we're going to delay our members' involvement in this uh, for a few months. But if you will give us one hour a month for outreach visitation, I want to ask you to check that. And then I will participate in evangelism training next Sunday, August the 10th, from 3 to 6. We'll provide child care. We have a tentative makeup date of August 24th. Would you please provide your name, an email address, phone number? And then at the bottom, will you check whether or not you've participated in evangelism training in the past? And if you have any experience in visitation, if you check that, I would greatly appreciate that. Now, as members are doing that, let me say to you, it is God's design to take every living human being and shape them into the image of Jesus Christ. The Father so delights in His Son, Jesus Christ, He wants to multiply Him and make millions upon billions of copies of His Son. Flattery, or excuse me, uh, uh, imitation is the best form of flattery. I think the Father agrees. He wants everyone to look like Jesus Christ. And so he has arranged your life and the influences in your life to move you to where you look like Jesus Christ. The need for Christ surfaces in the fact that we have fallen short of that glory of God. The good news is, however, though we fail, there is mercy and pardon in Jesus Christ. So that today, Jesus Christ not only stands as the ultimate model and the ultimate mind and the measure by which God measures us, Jesus Christ is the mediator as well. And he ends and puts to an end hostilities between God and anyone who will repent and believe the gospel. So I don't know what you've come here with today, what embarrassments or hurts or sorrows that you've inflicted upon yourself and offended God with, 
I don't know how you've embarrassed yourself or your family. I don't know the burden of guilt that you've got upon you. But I want to tell you, as long as Jesus Christ is still breathing, there is hope for you. He is crucified, he is risen from the dead, and he is more than able to cancel every sin and every offense you've ever brought to God. If you'll simply repent and embrace him and call on his name to do that. And we want to give you the opportunity now to do that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we ask, oh God, that you would do a neat work in hearts and lives today. Please exalt Jesus in our midst and honor him by bringing friends to Christ in these moments. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And when we sing, we're going to ask you to stand and staff will be here in the front and they will be very happy to meet your spiritual need. You just simply step out from where you are. Members will move aside if necessary and come to staff and let them know your spiritual need. There's no magic in walking down this aisle. This is just a practical way we give help here at Beach Haven Baptist Church to help serve your need. And so here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to quickly stand. I'm going to finish my prayer. We'll start singing. You step out from where you are and meet a staff member here for your spiritual needs. Some of you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. And God's moving you to become part of this church family. You come. Maybe you've got some other burden. You come. And maybe God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. You come. Some of you need to come to Jesus Christ. And he's urging you to come. And there is hope and there is peace in him with God if you'll repent and believe the gospel. So quickly, right now, stand with me, please. Let me finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Father, I pray that every word of our mouths, every meditation of our hearts, right now will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.